If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John 1, and we will in a moment here read verses 1 through 18. Last week we focused in on the truths from verses 1 through 5. Uh, This afternoon we'll look at verses 6 through 13. I believe that next Sunday we'll look at 14 through 17, and then we'll use verse 18 on the 23rd as a summary of that whole passage um, and think on what it means that Jesus has revealed God to us. But to begin, let's go ahead and read John 1, 1 through 18. A reminder that these are wonderful words in this Advent season to memorize for the purpose of meditation. If it's all 18 or just a few key ones, uh, like verse 12 that we'll think about um, this afternoon, one of the great verses in the Gospel of John, if not all of Scripture. But hear the word of the Lord this morning, or this afternoon, I should say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As John opens up his gospel and speaks about the incarnation, about the about Jesus coming into the world as Son of God and Son of Man. He allows that reality to unfold slowly. John is a good storyteller. If you're a good storyteller, you don't let things happen too fast. You let them unfold. And so he sort of allows the weight and the wonder of what he's talking about to hang in the air. The first five verses speak about the time before the Word's coming, revealing exactly who it was that was coming into the world. And then in verse 9, it says that the true light was coming into the world. It it speaks almost as if it's like a, a present action, creates this anticipation. And then finally, in verse 14, we find that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as John slowly reveals the Word, 
we find here in verses 6 through 13 that John is speaking primarily about how the revealed word was received when he entered into his world. John tells us how the world responded when the word arrived. As we give gifts this Christmas season, there's always a little bit of suspense about just how those gifts are going to be received. Uh, Will the person like what I'm giving them? Will they really like what I'm giving them? Or will they just say that they like it and then actually hate it? Uh, In the giving and receiving of gifts, some people are really good at showing their excitement when they're opening a gift from another person. Is anyone really good at that? Because my sister is the queen. She is awesome. Uh, We would go around the circle on Christmas Day opening presents, and I could never compete with her because she was so consistent. And she was at least what appeared to be genuinely enthusiastic about every gift that she got. It was impressive. On the other hand, I know some people who have no interest in putting on a show of of any kind. Uh, if, If they like the gift, you will know it. And if they don't like the gift, you will know that as well. And if they don't like the gift that you gave someone else, they might say something about that one too. Um, this often happens in my experience with when parents give their clothes, give clothes to teenagers. Uh, they'll let you know if they don't like it. Um, well, we rightly think at this time of year about Jesus as a gift who was sent and given by the Father. The, the sending of Christ is the giving of the gift of eternal salvation to souls lost in darkness. But how was the Son received when he first came into the world? How did people respond when the Creator entered his creation? And how will we respond? Will we receive him? Or will we reject him like an unwanted gift? Or will we pretend that we're really thrilled about him coming, but in reality not allow his coming to really change our life at all? John actually is able to tell us exactly how we will all respond to Christ, at least initially. initially. But he also calls us to be born again and to believe and receive the word. And so John 1, 6-13 proclaims this truth to us this afternoon. It's this, that we will never receive the Son of God unless we are born again. We will never receive the Son of God unless we are born again. As much as we might want to argue that we would have responded differently to the arrival of Jesus or to the testimony of his life, we have to recognize that our salvation found in receiving and believing in Jesus is a work of God from the beginning all the way to the end. Jesus is the only one who can save us, but we will never receive the Son of God unless we are born again. And so as we think on this reality, my hope is that we would see even more clearly the wonder of God's salvation and that we would rest even more fully in the love of God as our Father. A love that's shown as he sends his Son into a world that he knew would reject him, that he knew would kill him, but a world that he also knew he could make new through the new birth. So John is slowly allowing our eyes to adjust to the light of the world coming into his world. 
And as he does that, he's also opening our eyes to some witnesses that accompanied him. So as we think about our need to be born again, we can first, in verses 6 through 9, take note of the witnesses to the light. The witnesses to the light. That's what we find in verses 6 through 9. We could think about many of the characters in the Christmas story as witnesses to the light's entrance into the world, as those who, who saw what happened and could confirm exactly who the light was. So Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were there early on in the process. And of course, Mary and Joseph, I mean, they had front row seats to this miraculous entrance of the, the world, of the word into the world. Gabriel, uh, the angel, as well as the other angels were there before Jesus was born, and then they were, they were there on the day of his birth. The shepherds could be said to be witnesses, and then later the wise men saw and attested to who he was. Simeon and Anna are wonderful witnesses to that day when the eight-year-old Jesus was brought to the temple. But John doesn't mention any of those characters. Instead, he highlights the witness of John the Baptist. So in the, the witnesses to the light, the first one we see is the witness of John the Baptist. Having talked about who Jesus was as the word in verses one through five, John takes a sort of abrupt turn in verse six. He just says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He moves from the word to the witness of John the Baptist. And just to be clear, when he says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about, about John the Baptist, about Jesus's cousin, John who was born a few months before him to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. You can read about their intertwining birth stories in Luke chapter 1. But here we're seeing John the Baptist, not as a baby, but as the, the bearded witness in the wilderness. This is the John who came in the, the spirit of Elijah and set up camp on the banks of the Jordan River, eating locusts and wild honey and calling the Pharisees vipers and commanding everyone to repent and baptizing anyone who was willing, all in preparation for what he said was the soon arrival of the Messiah that he was announcing. John's teaching and presence, they held such strong authority in his day that many of the Jewish people thought that he was the Messiah. They thought he was the one that they had been waiting for. But John, the author of this gospel, tells us in no uncertain terms in verses 7 and 8 that John the Baptist was not the light. As I was meditating on these verses, it's amazing how many times he does say it. He actually says it three different ways. It says in verse 7, he came as a witness. That's who John was. He was a witness. And then it elaborates on that, to bear witness about the light. And then verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So John knows that John the Baptist was not the light. He was not the word. And John the Baptist himself knew he wasn't the light. He fully understood his role as a witness. Look just a little bit further down in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Well, let me just read through verse 23. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You could read the rest of this chapter. You could read the end of chapter 3 as well. But all of this tells us that John knew he was not the, the Messiah. 
John says here in these verses that he was neither the Messiah nor was he Elijah. He's rather the one that comes in the spirit of of Elijah. He was the one prophesied in the last two verses of Malachi. He was the final prophet before the arrival of the Messiah. He was the final witness in this long line of prophetic witnesses. From Genesis 3.15, when God had promised that one born of woman would crush sin and death, the prophets talked about this coming deliverer, slowly revealing more and more about what he would be like. Until John the Baptist, who is the great prophet, rises up and he's able to, to lift his physical finger and point to Jesus in the flesh. He doesn't have to make a prophecy about someone who is coming. He can point to him on the banks of the Jordan and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was a powerful, powerful witness to who Jesus was, which is why John the Apostle is so quick to bring up his testimony. John is previewing a theme that he's going to weave throughout this entire gospel, which is that of witnesses. Remember, why is John writing? He's writing so that we would believe, that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we would find life in his name. And to that end, he's going to provide us with witnesses throughout the gospel. John 5, verses 30 through 47 is a great example of this. Jesus mentions John the Baptist. He mentions his own works and signs. He mentions the voice of the Father at his baptism, the Old Testament scriptures, and Moses, all as witnesses to who he was. He's telling the crowd, there are so many witnesses to exactly who I am. And then John provides witnesses like the woman at the well, who says, come see a man who told me everything I ever, I ever did. Or the man born blind who was given sight, who said, I don't know exactly who he is, but I know I was blind and now I can see. And that guy did it. Now, they all serve as witnesses to who Jesus was. And in verse 7, we read that John the Baptist bore witness. Look at this in verse 7. Why did he bear? He came as a witness. Why? To bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That's John's goal, that we would believe in who Jesus is. The gospel of John is not asking us to blindly or irrationally believe these things, which is why John calls witnesses, just like any good attorney would in trying to prove his case. He calls individuals and he calls signs and miracles and the words of Jesus and the words of scriptures and John the Baptist, all to show that Jesus truly was the savior that he claimed to be, that he really lived and he did everything that the gospel writers talked about, that he really died, that he truly rose again, that our faith is rooted in reality, a reality attested to by eyewitnesses. And when we accept that testimony, the testimony of these witnesses, the testimony of Jesus, we become witnesses. That's what Acts has been teaching us. We are witnesses of who Christ is. We are called to announce like John the Baptist and John the Apostle and all these others that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the only hope of forgiveness. Well, there's another witness mentioned here in John 1 along with John the Baptist. We saw this witness a little bit in verses 4 and 5 last week. Uh, And verse 9 also points to this witness, which is the witness of the light. The witness of the light. The light, who is Jesus, is, is a witness to himself. But more specifically, it's the presence of the light in all people that shines as a witness. 
the light is, is God. John later writes, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And despite the effects of the fall, the light of God as a source of life still shines in all people as a witness to every single person. It shines in the darkness of the world and our hearts, and it's not completely snuffed out. It's not overcome, verse 5 says. And verse 9 tells us that Jesus, who is God, was coming into the world. And then what's it say about him? He was coming into the world, and it says that he was the true light, which gives light to everyone. To everyone. All people see and know in some way the light of Jesus. Solomon talks about this idea in Ecclesiastes when he says that God has set eternity in our hearts. And Paul talks about this in about our, the light of our own conscience that is a part of the image of God in Romans 2.13, seen in the fact that Gentiles do what the law says because the law is written on their hearts. All of this says that the echo of the image of God is still faintly heard in the halls of our hearts. And it's announcing the existence of God. It's announcing our need of redemption. And yet almost in the same breath, John reminds us that the light of this general revelation that's found in the world, that's found in the image of God, that we all bear, it's not enough. It's not enough to save us. The witnesses to Jesus are clear. But apart from God's grace, we all refuse to listen to them. That's why John describes in verses 10 and 11 the rejection of the light by all. So we see in 6 through 9 the, the witnesses to the light, and then verses 10 through 11, it's the rejection of the light by all. We're, we're told there about the he was in the world and the world was made through him. We're told again of this mystery that the one through whom the world was, was made was in the world. It reminded me of that scene in Mary Poppins where Bert, alongside Mary and Jane and Michael, you remember this, they, they jump into Bert's picture, sidewalk chalk picture that he'd drawn on the ground. And Jesus is the, the source and the sustainer and the artist of this world. And he enters into the place that he had created. The shock and the surprise of verses 10 and 11 is that the creator is rejected by his creation. That he was spurned by the masterpiece that he had brought into existence. John says this in two ways. It says that one, the world did not know him. And two, that his own people did not receive him. Now, all rejection of Jesus finds its final source in our sinful suppression of the truth. So uh, Romans 1, 18 through 22 tells us that we are able to clearly see who God is because of the world that he has made and the light of his image in us. We all know who God is, but because of our sin, we press that down. We suppress the truth and we reject our creator. But alongside that sin, and maybe as a fruit or an evidence of how sin works, we also reject Jesus because of these two ways um, that are mentioned. We'll call the first one ignorance, that the world did not know him. It's, it's ignorance. The, the image of God is still in us, but it's so marred that we don't recognize our creator when he comes to us. New Year's Eve is, is quickly approaching which is my annual reminder that I am not cool, that I am no longer with it 
or hip in any way because we will turn on at some point a network television New Year's celebration being broadcast from Times Square and one after another musicians and celebrities will come onto the stage and I will have no idea who any of them are. In an infinitely more tragic way, our sin makes us completely ignorant of the creator of the world. We're blind to all the witnesses to him and we would walk right past him on the street if he were here. Friends, let's remember that this is true of our hearts apart from Christ's redemption, that we will not recognize him on our own. And let's also remember this as we interact with our friends and our neighbors and our family members, that sin is heartbreakingly blinding. That it keeps us ignorant about the most important things in life and about the most important person to ever walk this earth. That yes, we, we reject Jesus willfully because of our sin, but we also reject him ignorantly because we are just spiritually blind to him. We reject the light because of our ignorance, but it was also seen that another reason is that we reject him because of confusion. That's this idea that he came to his own people and his own people didn't recognize him. The, the world can claim ignorance, but there seems to be a sense in which God's chosen people who had been waiting for him, that they should have recognized him, that they should have seen the signs and realized who he was, that they should have somehow spotted how he had fulfilled all these words of the Old Testament. But they were confused. In inarguably the greatest Christmas movie of all time, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, George Bailey is given the chance to see what the world would be like if he had never been born. And, and as he goes around Bedford Falls in the midst of this, this nightmare, he greets all his old friends and none of them know who he is. In one of the, the great lines of cinema, Nick the bartender says to George, I don't know you from Adam's off ox. I love that line for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> but worse than Nick, his mother won't let him walk through the door. And his wife runs away screaming when he tries to come near her. And so too, those that we would expect to see Jesus for who he truly is, they rejected him. They were confused. I think their confusion was probably due in part to false expectations. They knew the Messiah would be a royal born king in the line of David and that he would reign in power and he would crush all of Israel's oppressors. But he was born in the midst of scandal and he grew up in Nazareth. He spoke of the kingdom in ways they had never expected. And then he was crucified as a criminal. He was snuffed out like we're going to snuff out these candles come the season of Lent. You know, as we think about this confusion and those people that we would expect to recognize the Messiah, I, I think some of us might imagine that because of who we are, we have some sort of greater likelihood of seeing who Jesus is. You know, some of us grew up in the church. Some of you, kids especially, you're growing up in the church. Some of us have heard the good news of the gospel. We've heard the stories of scripture in our homes and we've heard them in the church. But even those of us that are born into and sort of swim around in the waters of the church and of the gospel, even, even us, even those that are born within that, 
we will not see Jesus for who, true, for who he truly is on our own, in our own power. We will be confused about who he is. We will reject him. No matter how great our upbringing is, or the natural inclination of our heart is to reject the light. The story of the birth of Jesus shows us this kind of ignorant, confused, sinful rejection. Remember, there's no room at the inn. Shepherds are the only people that come and bow before him. What does Herod want to do? Kill him. And this is how we all naturally respond to the entrance of Jesus into our world, no matter who we are or what our family is like or where we grow up. We all suppress the truth. We all reject the word. We all want to snuff out the light. In A Christmas Carol, the first spirit that visits Scrooge is the ghost of Christmas past. The spirit is described by Dickens as, as having a light emanating from its forehead and holding under one of its arms a, an extinguisher cap of some kind, which Scrooge from the very beginning had an urge to put on top of the spirit's head. And after the images of the past are revealed and Scrooge's foolishness and selfishness through the years is revealed, he did just that. It, a final maddening image from Scrooge's history is shown to him. And then Dickens writes this, Scrooge turned upon the ghost and seeing that it looked upon him with a face in which in some strange way there were fragments of all the faces it had shown him, wrestled with it. Leave me, take me back, haunt me no longer. In the struggle, if that can be called a struggle in which the ghost with no visible resistance on its own part was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary, Scrooge observed that its light was burning high and bright, and dimly connecting that with its influence over him, he seized the extinguisher cap and by a sudden action pressed it down upon its head. The spirit dropped beneath it so that the extinguisher covered its whole form. But though Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, he could not hide the light which streamed from under it in an unbroken flood upon the ground. Like Scrooge, we all seek to extinguish the light of truth found in Jesus because of the conviction that it brings us. But we will never fully silence him. John later writes in John 3, 19 through 20, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people, all people, you and I included, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And yet, and yet in describing the rejection of the light by everyone, John also describes the blessings of receiving the light. Verse 12 talks about the blessings of receiving the light. In the midst of all this rejection, there are those who receive the word, who, who welcome the light. There are hearts who don't cast him out, but hearts that prepare him room. And the blessing and the gift that comes from receiving and believing in the word is that we are given a right. We are given authority. We are given power to do what? To call ourselves children of God. 
we who had rejected God are welcomed back into his family as sons and daughters. Maybe you've heard someone use the phrase, you have no right. I don't know, someone would maybe say that to someone who enters into their home. You have no right to be in here. Or they say something, you have no right to say that. You have no right to do that. And while the light of the life of Jesus is in, his all, is, is in all of us, that alone does not give us the right to call ourselves children of God in the sense that John is speaking of here. Our natural and sinful rejection of Jesus removes our right to say that we are his children. But when we receive Jesus, when we believe who he is as the word of God, as the creator of all, as the source of all life and light, and the God who has come to save us through his death and burial and resurrection, when we believe and receive, then he gives us the power and the authority and the right to say that we are children of God, along with the certainty that we really truly belong to him. We who have run from him and rebelled against him and rejected all his goodness, when we repent of our sins, receive Jesus as Messiah and King, and believe that his finished work on the cross is sufficient to save our souls, he adopts us and makes us his children. I've read this to you before, but J.I. Packer's quote should probably be read, I don't know, maybe every day. He says this, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. It said that Christmas time makes us all feel like children again, right? So I would invite you into that, into feeling like a child, but with the focus being on the fact that if you have received Jesus as the Word of God and the Savior of the world, then you have the right and the power and the authority to say, I am a child of God. And God is my Father. And that's a reality so deep that it can change your entire life. So I pray that we would allow God's Spirit to fill our whole being with that, that cry that the Spirit cries out in us, which is Abba, Father. That, that we would be reminded of the greatness of God's love and care for us. That He sings over you. He rejoices in having you as a son and as a daughter. That's a, a deep knowledge of a deep knowledge of that relationship will change us. And the right to call ourselves children of God comes when we receive and believe in Jesus. But let me finally ask, thinking about that, how this switch between 
rejecting and receiving happens. How do we go from those who reject and and run from the light to those who welcome Jesus as the true light? How do we reconcile verses 10 and 11 that he comes into the world and we all reject him with verse 12 that some of us can receive him? We reconcile it through verse 13 because verse 13 tells us the root of receiving the light, the, the root of receiving the light. Or you could just say how it's even possible that we can receive the light. What does verse 13 says? It says that God has given us the right to become children of God, children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Children are born. All children are born. And so children of God need to be born. It's what we call being born again. Our natural birth in the line of Adam guarantees our sinfulness and it guarantees our rejection, which is why our birth into the family of God has to be a completely new birth. John is at pains to tell us how this birth does not happen. He says that we are born again, not of blood, literally of bloods, probably meaning that natural procreation has to do with with two bloodlines, the bloodline of a man and the bloodline of a woman coming together. That's how natural birth happens. But this is supernatural birth. So it doesn't happen by bloods. We're also reminded that there's, there's no lineage, including being a child of, of Abraham, that causes someone to bypass being born again. No physical father or mother guarantees that God will be your father. The new birth is not of blood. It's also not of the will of the flesh. So it's not the result of our own volition or our own desire. And it's not something that we can accomplish in some sort of a natural way. It's not even something that we desire in our own flesh alone. It's not of the will of our flesh because our flesh in sin never wants this. So Horatius Bonar writes in in a hymn, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. We're born again, and it's not of blood. It's not of the will of flesh. It's not of the will of man. John's piling up phrases showing that, that to receive the right to call ourselves children of God through the new, new birth is nothing that a human being can accomplish on his or her own. No person, no priest, no pastor, no parent can absolve you of your sin or intercede on your behalf or save you or give you a new spiritual life. How many mediators are there between God and man? There's only one, the man Christ Jesus. And he is the only one who can cause you to be born again. The coming of Jesus shows us something deep. It shows us that God wants to save us. He wants to restore us. His will is to adopt us. He wants to make us his children. 
and only He can do it. How can we be born again? It tells us here, not by the blood, not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Only by God. Only by the will of God. Our entrance into God's family, our, our new birth as children of God, has to be done by God and God alone. He is the only one who can make us alive so that our hearts will believe and receive him. John's later later writes in 1 John 5.1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Do you see the tense there? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The new birth awakens our blind, ignorant, confused, sinful souls to believe the witnesses, to really see who Jesus is, and then to receive him as our Savior and our Lord. We will never, never receive the Son of God unless we are born again. But thanks be to God that he has come as the only one who can save us. And in his coming, he has made it possible for us to be born again through his gracious and loving will that Jesus was born so that you and I could be born again. My hope is that God would fill our hearts with genuine thanks and joy at the gift that's been given us in Christ. And it's the gift of Jesus. And it's the gift of a, of a birthright. The gift of being adopted by our Heavenly Father. It's greater than anything we could ever imagine. It's beyond anything we could ever accomplish on our own. And so we would join with the angels, I hope, and sing glory to God in the highest and glory to Him alone.